talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Colorado Avalanche are Stanley Cup champions, and Hamilton Bulldogs need to win to stay in the Memorial Cup. Sounds like the first week of summer in Canada. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diane and Dave and Erskine uh, booking the guests as always. Okay, in uh, the hammer this weekend, of course, the rally on all weekend. And, well, you know, might as well have been, uh, especially if you ask Will. <laughs> We've got two different aspects, two different perspectives of the rally at Tim Horton's Field. One from the inside, one from the outside. Uh, in, watching it all go down, whooping it up, having a great time. Uh, Diana Weeks was uh, at the rally. And then a resident who lives nearby and can give us the vibe from from uh, perhaps a resident perspective. Will Weber, a new resident to the area, was there. Hey, kids, glad to have you here. Hope you had a great weekend. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks. Uh, it was a great show. So, so tell us about this, Diana. When did you get there? What did you see? What did you do? Describe it for us. They had a market during the uh, daytime portion. So I think it opened at about um, 11 a.m. And it went to, I think, about 4. And it was a market that was just set up outside of Tim Horton's field before the show. And uh, anyone could go to this. And it was just a bunch of Hamilton uh, local stuff. So like local vendors, crafts, arts, that kind of thing. That was pretty cool. We checked it out. Uh, went home for a bit. Came back. Um, to catch Mountain Joy, who was one of the opening uh, bands, and uh, then watch the rest of the show. It's fantastic. Great show. So obviously a perfect uh, weekend for this because the weather was just absolutely spectacular. What was it like in the stadium? Uh, what was the vibe like? Well, the vibe was great. I mean, the sun, we were sitting on the side where the sun was uh, blinding us. But uh, when the sun went down uh, behind the stands, it was uh, it was perfect. It was great. You know, sunset looked beautiful, you know, as the stadium always does for Ticats games when we have that. Um, you know, and, and it was just fantastic to see the stadium packed. And, of course, uh, our hometown boys on stage and uh they as usual did a killer job so it was it was fantastic so what was the show like what was it like to see them again live it was it was good it was good um you know i think that you could really sense the energy from them uh particularly max obviously who's the front man and and how yeah. happy they were to be home and obviously how happy they were to be getting this done you know two years uh later because um you know this was planned two years ago and then uh, they finally yeah. got to do it so all right, so fun time had by all. Your uh, take on the weekend, very cool, and uh, we'll do it again. Thumbs up all around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, uh, Max, you know, got, getting a little bit political as he does, and it was well-received, so he obviously, uh, you know, had a bit of a shout-out there to, uh, you know, kind of negate the Roe versus Wade. Uh, it, wow, what was, that ex- what was that experience like, especially in a stadium? Uh, everyone cheered <laughs> as far yeah. as I know uh, I mean yeah. he was talking to a lot of Americans that had come up for the show uh, so there's wow. you know a clip on uh, on uh, their Twitter account and, and Instagram where he shows you know and, and obviously you know it was met with great reception because I feel like the you know the type of folk that go to Arkell shows are you know of the same mindset as that and uh, so yeah. you know it was uh, it was good to see him do that he's always been outspoken about stuff like that but uh, we, I think there was a lot of people really hoping that he would say something and he did 
Wow, that's incredible. All right, Diana, thanks so much. Uh, glad you had a great time. And, of course, uh, anytime you get the Arkells and uh, Hamiltonians together, it's going to be a great time. All right, on the outside of the stadium was uh, Will Weber and, uh, I guess, newly moved into the area. So what's And I've often wondered what it's like to live down in that area, whether it's a Ticat game or a, a concert or something like this. So what was it like for you living in the area? Well, yeah, I was very, very blessed that I did not have to ride public transit that night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness, because I'm, like, right next to, like, Maine and King area, obviously, right, right next to Tim Hortons. Anytime you have to catch a bus when there's a Thai Cats, or yeah. especially this, oh, good luck. And we felt the whole house kind of shake, you know, older houses, how the foundations are always just a little bit. I'm used to living like up in more suburban areas. So whenever anything is loud, I immediately go, okay, what's going on? I am upset by this. I must go make a complaint to the city council. (laughs) Not so much anymore. (laughs) So you can hear it no problem, right? Oh, yes. If I stood out on my balcony, I could just, I could hear it. You're enjoying it. You're enjoying it. It's very nice. Uh, it's once it turns around to music that I don't like, that'll be the point where I really complain about it. That's right. When you get about 20 <laughs> years older, you'll be shaking your cane or something, your walker at them and stuff. So what about people going to and fro? The, that area must have just been jammed. Oh, my goodness. The uh, parking was just absolutely terrible up and down our street. It's a bit of a, a, a main road, and it has two bicycle lanes with two lanes yeah. for regular traffic, so not an awful lot in the way of parking. People were still parked in the uh, in the parking lane or in the in the uh, bike lane on my side of the street. So obviously, as Diana was saying, that there's the marketplace ahead of time. So was this like all afternoon, all day, all night? Uh, there was a there was quite a bit of trickling coming in uh, in the lead up to the main event, as it were, and then in and around. 11 p.m., 12 a.m., that's when things just, everyone just on the streets, just that's huge it, the doors crowds. are open, yeah. Yep, we were trying to uh, do a little traffic shuff, uh, shuffle in order to make sure that my roommate's car, who he works in the morning, we were trying to make sure all his right. was at the end of our driveway, <laughs> so while we were out. also shuffling around another sedan and a motorcycle, and the whole process took about 10 minutes because of all the people trying to get out wow. of the stadium and get to their cars. Yeah, You should have opened up like a Kool-Aid stand. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's go. why I'm missing is the Enterprise. I see things that's like this, right. and I go, ah, that's a shame, instead of going, Diana could have money. Diana could have parked on your lawn. Come Absolutely. On. <laughs> instead of 25 minutes away from the stadium to get the $10 parking. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, there you go. There Come you park go. in my driveway next time. I'll hit no you up. Charge. I'll hit you up. Yeah, and not only that, it's uh, free drinks and wings, too, with every parking spot. There you go. All right, thanks, kids. Appreciate it. Uh, Joining us, Diana Weeks and Will Weber, two different uh, perspectives of the rally, one from inside Tim Hortons Field, one from outside Tim Hortons Field. Bulldogs need to win to stay in. She'll win again tonight. And, of course, last night, uh, Colorado Avalanche, Stanley Cup champs, beating Tampa Bay. And the streak is over for them. To talk more about all of this, Sean Fitzgerald is with us from The Athletic and here now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised here, man? It seemed uh, whenever Tampa Bay was down and out, they could pull something out of the hat and, and, and stage some sort of unbelievable comeback. Are you surprised this is over in six? I'm kind of disappointed because it was entertaining hockey. But, I mean, surprised? I don't know. I mean, especially... Mm especially in this final round, but you saw it in the third round, that 
I mean, Tampa, I mean, they've played what six months of extra hockey when you add up the, all of these playoff runs over the last three years, mm-hmm. six months of extra hockey over that time that, you know, it made sense that guys might start running out of gas that, you know, over the last couple of rounds, you'd see guys go off hobbling and then come back and, you know, you know, hockey night in Canada would show replays of them, you know, desperately trying to get their foot to work yeah. again as they skated during the TV timeout. Like, they were just, I think, ground down, broken down, tired at the end, and they they just ran out of gas. But running out of gas, you know, what six periods away from a Stanley Cup championship, a third in a row—that's that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's that's still, a, in my eyes, you know, a dynastic team considering everything they had to overcome. You were talking about the block shots and such, which you know, obviously, uh, when you're in the finals, that's what you see. But like, even blades getting knocked off of skates—it's unbelievable. You know, just the carnage. Well, I mean, you remember back, I mean, way back when the Leafs used to win stuff, uh, like even a playoff round? No, I and, don't. I, mean, I, I don't. No, I mean, so I if you, what you do is you have to go to the library, um, get sign out a couple of Dusty <laughs> books, and they have pictures of when the Leafs used to win playoff rounds. They're, they're way in the back because they're so old. But, I mean, way back in, you know, 1992, 93, there was, you know, Doug Gilmore, I think, was the perfect sort of vision of, of what playoff hockey can do to you. That, you know, you take a look before, you know, the Leafs start the playoffs and, you know, he's tan, he's got the the flowing hair, the sort of borderline mullet, and he looks pretty healthy. And, you know, by the time that they got eliminated, especially against the Kings in the third round in 93, like he'd lost 20 pounds, he was cut. It didn't look like he'd seen the sunlight in about six months. Mm. Like he, they just looked ill, right? And I think that's what the playoffs can do is that it's, it's two months, it's every other day, it's travel. It's just such a grueling marathon that, yeah, I mean, what the the Lightning did to do that three times in a row to make it to the fourth round three straight years, you know, through the COVID bubble year, through uh, the lockdowns, the concerns, the outbreaks, all of that stuff um, is is nothing short of remarkable. Uh, that being said, I, you know, I, I, I guess when you win one, uh, how can you be sad if you don't win three? The whole dynasty <laughs> thing, um, you know, the, the, your, your comments on that and the whole dynasty or lack thereof. Yeah, I think, you know, in a salary cap era, um, I think they count as a dynasty. I mean, yeah, they're mm-hmm. not the Montreal Canadiens who won five in a row in the 50s or the Montreal Canadiens who won four in a row in the 70s or the New York Islanders who won four in a row, um, you know, or even the Oilers of the 80s, that, you know, in 2004, 2005, uh, hockey famously shut down. Uh, The NHL locked out its players. We lost the Stanley Cup. And what they wanted was, you know, cost certainty. They wanted that salary cap. So what that means is you can have a really, really good team, a really good young team. And as you have success and those young players become more established, they want more money. But because you have that ceiling, that salary cap, you can't pay them what they want. So inevitably, you got to shuffle the deck chairs and maybe move some pieces out the door. So what you see is what happened in Los Angeles with the Kings in Chicago, where they had very good young cores and in another era might have gone, you know, to three or four straight Stanley Cups. But they had to sort of, you know, fall apart and shuffle the deck chairs and inevitably sort of collapsed under the weight of their own success. Um, For Tampa to do that, not only under the the structure of a salary cap, but, you know, going through everything that, I mean, frankly, all of us have been through over the last two and a half years. um, I think, you know, they do get to qualify now as a dynasty. That's a very valid point. And even going through uh, this during a pandemic and what have you. Oh, okay. So how about the future? We've only got about 30 seconds left. The future of Colorado, what can we expect from them moving forward? 
I mean, Colorado's got a lot of good young players, right? They've got Cal McCarr. They've got Nathan McKinnon. Um, they have some questions in goal potentially. But again, it's the same thing Is yeah, maybe they get a good chance to run it back. But with the salary cap, um, I, I think what the Lightning have just shown is that, you know, those old, those old school dynasties that our grandparents talk about, um, they're probably not coming back anytime soon. And Tampa's got as close as anyone's going to get for quite some time. Sean Fitzgerald with us. You can read him in The Athletic and, of course, Colorado Avalanche, new Stanley Cup champions. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, many of us, and you know, even though we, we knew this was coming in the sense that we saw how the Supreme Court uh, had changed and such, and that this was coming down the pipe, but it, it still doesn't make it uh, uh, any easier to digest, I don't think. Um, you know, I have a hard time going backwards on anything. And uh, something like this just seems bizarre uh, simply because uh, e- even though you change laws or you make things more difficult or illegal, can you really go back 50 years? Can you go back 10 years? I mean, you know, we've just come through uh, a two and a half year global pandemic. And, and you know, there's no way life's the, the same way coming out the other end of that. So uh, I'm not sure how this all works and, and whether thing, okay, that's it, that's great. Now things are just like it used to be. I, I just don't think it's, it works that way. I don't think it's that simple. And uh, obviously lots of chatter in the United States over the Roe versus Wade uh, 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 overturning by the Supreme Court there. And now it's up to the states to try to make sure that those who need these services can get them. And, uh, but again, this is a battle on each individual state, uh, between each individual state and, and the elections now more important than ever. Um, but again, how do you move backwards with something like this? Let's, let's bring in Tina Fettner, professor, Department of Sociology, McMaster University, and is with us now. Tina, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. I'm well. Thanks. So obviously we know this issue and, and, um, and, and how bizarre this, this seems for a lot of us who are old enough to have gone through this and saw it, it, it uh, evolve what it was like in the 1970s and such. Uh, that's one thing. But can you actually go backwards? Can you, well, let's go back to the way it was 50 years ago and, and just assume things will continue on as normal. How do you do that? Yeah, you definitely, there's definitely no going backwards, although uh, it's always important to keep in mind that there, the sort of myth that we have that we always move toward a better life in the future, um, that just doesn't hold with history very well. And there's always, you know, uh, pushes forward and then um, going back as well. But to answer your question about whether we can go back, we so much has changed in 50 years. I mean, the idea that American women will just roll over and accept mm-hmm. a second-class citizenship is uh, kind of a, a bizarre fantasy from the right. There's no way that this is going to be acceptable to, you know, the majority of Americans. And, um, you know, it just is a matter of the political power down there being tilted right now. And it's funny because you're thinking, well, does everybody just assume it's going to go back to the way it was? But the way it was 50 years ago, they obviously turned it upside down and we came up with a law that we came up with. So it wasn't even valid back then. 
Um, how do you take something that's new, or so, sorry, something that, that that you've been doing forever or for a long period of time, and then go backwards with that and just assume that none of that growth, none of that education, none of that advancement in all the other aspects of life has moved forward? Is well, this going exactly- to be? Is this going to be as easy as it seems for people? Because are people just going to assume that when you do this, this solves the problem? Or a problem? I mean, maybe in some people's minds it will, but the the thing that I think is obvious to some of us is that um, you know the right to control your body has been um, intertwined with women's uh, movement into the labor market in large numbers, um, movement forward on women's rights and equality, and and so to have two feet on the ground in terms of social inclusion, full citizenship, uh, a right to earn your own living and determine your own life, and then to suddenly take away sort of a right that has been so fundamental to providing all of that. Um, I think that it is um, going to, there's going to be a lot of protest and a lot of controversy. And um, I think that, you know, there's more news ahead. And again, it's not um, as if this has not been an ongoing struggle for equal rights, gender equality for years. You talked about the glass ceiling, a perfect example, especially with the, with the pandemic and such and, and who's being affected most. And you brag about, for example, we've come this far, but then you take it right away. It just seems bizarre. And, you know, we've talked politically with various people. Do we have to, you know, do they have to wait until the the, uh, fabric of the Supreme Court changes again? Does this now have to be uh, done all at the state level? Are there any other laws that could have been uh, put in place? That sort of thing. Um, many, many seem to think, well, this is now set in stone, but can it be, do you think, even if society doesn't buy in? Yes, I think (laughs) that it is going to be very difficult to change these laws now, very difficult. And it is a cautionary tale, I think, for people who care about equal rights to think about what they can do to nip things in the bud before they become deeply institutionalized. So now in the U.S., they're looking at what? Lifetime appointments on the Supreme Court, um, you know, a, a fairly uh, gerrymandered system where a small, you know, where the minority party that hasn't um, won the popular vote uh, more than once in 30 years uh, holds power and, and definitely holds veto power over changing laws. It's, it's entrenched and it is going to be very difficult to change um, that, you know, of course, in the long run, you know, nothing is nothing lasts forever, but it is going to be much more difficult to change it now than it would have been five years or 10 years ago. Do you think we were naive here or they were naive? You know, I don't want to point fingers at anybody specifically, but just assuming, well, that's not going to happen. There's no way we can do that. There's no way it's going to go backwards. There's no way this is going to go back 50 years. Do you think people were naive in that respect? Just assuming. I it- definitely read the op-eds that said that. I saw the pundits have that view and it did seem to me naive. I preferred to listen to the people on the ground the you know people that work in the abortion clinics, the people in healthcare, the people in women's rights activism, that were very clear-eyed about this, um, and you know the it never made it all the way through to action um, 
from the political parties. So how does this change health care now? Whether, uh, what does this do to the United States? What does it mean for Canada? Well, so in the, in the, in the United States, it means that um, there's going to be devastating impacts on women's health. Uh, it means that women who have ectopic pregnancies or who um, have uh, uh, even wanted pregnancies that go poorly are much more likely to have negative outcomes, including fatal outcomes, than they were previously. Are we going to see um, uh, abortion tourism? Are we going to see people coming to Canada who want this service or going to other states to get this? I I definitely think so. And I think the activism that is starting to, um, you know, come together in these days since the ruling is about helping um, people uh, who are pregnant get to states where it's still legal. And so that is, I think, the plan in the short run, helping people access um, the abortion pill for medical abortion, if you're if you're um, eligible for that, and um, help people, you know, travel across uh, states to get health care. But it is not going to be easy. And of course, it's going to impact, um, you know, poor women uh, who, you know, women who work full time, who can't get away, who don't have a car, who need public transit. It's much harder for some people to travel for health care than others. And we know that people are going to fall through the cracks. Tina Fentner with this professor, Department of Sociology, McMaster University, talking about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the fallout of this. We are still feeling this. And uh, who knows what this is going to end up like and, and where it's going to go as uh, these women seek uh, medical attention, which in some areas of the United States is being denied. Tina, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So, uh, Colorado Avalanche Stanley Cup champs as of last night in Game 6. Uh, Bulldogs win to stay in tonight. It is uh, June 27th. Oh, it is summer in Canada when you're watching and listening to and and uh, and getting excited about playoff hockey. you got to like it. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing great things. Just getting yelled here for not having a mask on. So uh, just got to, you know, set my mask in the arena here. I forgot. All right. Uh, just get your elbow up there. Just get your elbow up. You can just, you know, sort of talk in your arm if you'd like. Um, you know, it, it seems that the hockey season gets later and later and later uh, every year. I remember the old days, you know, if you could catch by the 24th of May weekend, pulling the uh, TV out onto the uh, back deck and such. But now it's like we're clearly into summer and still enjoying the game, which you got to love. Of course, pandemic involved. But, but it seems to be getting later and later well I, it is unusual i mean this this the memorial cup that's going on tonight with the bulldogs i mean this is normally about five weeks earlier than this but because of covid yeah. and scheduling and other things it's a push so that by wednesday i mean you're you're basically finishing um what a day before canada day which is yeah. you know which is a really unusual and you know it makes for a very long season i was talking to some of the guys today and i mean they the first day of training camp was something like August the 27th. So it's been 10 months that they've been going at this um, to, to hopefully get to Wednesday. That's what, that's what tonight's about, to hopefully get to the, the very last possible day of the season, which would be Wednesday. 
So uh, you've been talking to them. Where, where, where's the headspace? Uh, obviously, this has been a bit more difficult. And explain to everybody how you can lose and still be in this game. Uh, you can't. you got to win tonight. Uh, tonight is you win against Shawinigan or your season is done. Yeah. And, um, you know, the headspace, I'll tell you, uh, last Monday, a week ago tonight, when they came here and played their first game, they were bad. I mean, they were, they were the worst they've probably played all season. And they've played two games since then, and each game they've gotten better to the point where last game they were hurt by injuries. That's less of an issue. Guys are back tonight, but they were down to five defensemen, and they were hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. But they played well. And, you know, there's a, a lot of optimism that the team that we saw in Hamilton, those who watched this team all year, play really, really well, that that team has arrived in St. John, and that team is ready to compete. And, you know, they played Shawinigan, who they're playing tonight. They played them in the second game of this tournament and should have won. And uh, were by far the better team five-on-five. Problem was they took a lot of penalties, Hmm. and Shawinigan's got a deadly power play, and they scored three power play goals, and Hamilton lost three to two. So if they can somehow stay out of the penalty box, you would think that they've got an outstanding chance of winning tonight. So uh, at the end of all of this, uh, lost initially to Shawinigan. What do they need to do to win? What's their biggest challenge moving forward? Penalty box? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. This is as I say, when they were playing five-on-five, Shawinigan was not in Hamilton's league. Now, that was one game, and we don't see a lot of the Quebec League games, so that could have been an outlier. You know, Hamilton had a a stinker in their first game. Maybe Shawinigan's game against Hamilton was their stinker. We really, you know, it's really hard to know because you get to a tournament like this, Scott, and you're seeing teams that you just don't see ever. I mean, I I bet you that there's not five people in Hamilton, even the diehard of diehards, who watched five Edmonton Oil Kings games this year or five Shawinigan Cataracts games. And so we just, you know, you get here and it's like, I don't know what they're like. And so that game where Hamilton was badly outplaying them, truly, I, I couldn't tell you if that was because Hamilton is that much better or if Shawinigan just had an off night. But I can tell you that if Hamilton does want to win today, and they do, the one thing they absolutely don't want to do is spend the whole night in the penalty box again because that just killed them. All right, so talk about the community hosting this event. What a big deal it is to them. It has been. I mean, St. John. Have you ever been out to St. John? I've I had a stop over there once. That's about all I've been, yeah. St. John is a lovely city. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a small city. Everybody yeah. here, it's typical. It's East Coast. Everybody's friendly. Everyone says hello. I know. It's a lovely yeah. place. They've got a great setup with almost all the Memorial Cup stuff in one little part of town right near the harbor, near the port. Yeah. Um, it's it's a, like it's a perfect kind of setup, and, and and you know you do get thinking about if Hamilton was to host something like this, how do you do it? Because this city right here is sort of perfectly built to put this kind of stuff around the arena and everything within walking distance. Right. And you know what? I mean, Hamilton, the arena is right downtown. You you could do it. The problem is, you probably remember about uh, four years ago, Hamilton bid for this, mm-hmm. and the Canadian Hockey League says, yeah, you know what, your rink stinks. So until you fix your rink, we're not hosting a, a Memorial Cup there. Well, we're waiting to see if the rink gets fixed. So we'll see. But you know what? It's a, it's a, they've done a, a very, very good job here, and the community has been all behind it. Everywhere you go, there's St. John Sea Dog signs up and people wearing T-shirts and sweaters, and um, you know they've, they've done well. 
All right, Bulldogs got a win to stay in Shawinigan tonight. Radley's there. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Hey, Scott, Scott little, yes. As you're going, as you're going, quick little tidbit. Do you know what cataracts or the Shawinigan cataracts are playing today? You know what cataract means in French? No. Did we do this before? No. The cataract is French for waterfall. This is the city of waterfalls against the city of waterfalls tonight. Wow! Hey, are theirs as are theirs as packed as ours? Do they write tickets out to people that are climbing across other people's property to get to them? We should see if they've got the same issues we do. Theirs is only about showing and fall, so I don't know. Maybe they can control it better than all of our numerous ones. There you go, and that the best waterfall city. And now you know the rest of the story. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Thank you, Scott. Have fun. Thanks, Scott. All right, a new poll from Lord Michael Ashcroft, a prominent British pollster, shows steady civic peace in Canada that is at odds with familiar worries of expanding ideological divides in the country. Sound familiar? It's where we are. And have we changed uh, two and a half years into a global pandemic? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time again. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am Scott. Thanks. Great to be with you again. We, you know, we started to notice uh, in the latter part, last six months or so, uh, things start to change. Things become a little bit more divisive. Uh, we just went through a provincial election where it seems that you know the top five uh, uh, priorities of people were a lot different than they were pre-pandemic. Have we started to see what we are going to be like in a post-pandemic world? What this? Uh, global pandemic has done to us, what it has taught us? Well, I, I mean, uh, the, the, the really great thing about reading that report or that study was it was it felt more like the Canada we thought of pre-pandemic in, in the hmm. sense that the overall notion from the survey data is that Canada is not really as divided as certainly many, many other countries are, and maybe even than we feel, you know, many of us feel divided because this has touched us personally. We have friends, we have family, and we went through this terrible period of having different opinions than they did on critical issues that meant a lot to us. Uh, and so it felt like Canada had gone a really bad direction, but, but my hope is that we're in fact emerging from this and going back towards the Canada we all know and love, a Canada of people who respect each other, who are friendly, polite, etc. Had we had we taken things for granted, have we learned from that now? Well, you know, that, that'll be the interesting question. The, the, the way I kind of see it, you know, it, it really takes a special ingredient for people to start caring beyond themselves and beyond them for their family and really embracing society and, and caring for others in their community. And what we kind of saw and, and still, you know, hear hints of every now and then are situations where, where that was reversed, where people were just worried about themselves um, and, you know, things that matter to them. And if it hurt other people, too bad. And that just felt non-Canadian to us. It felt really strange. But I think the good news is, as we're kind of emerging, as, as the things that triggered that, and the biggest one, of course, was the vaccine mandate, as that kind of fades into the distance and becomes irrelevant, then it becomes a less important part of our lives, our positions on that. And I'm a firm, firm advocate for saying what we need to do now is, is learn common ground. Like, let's, let's just avoid those issues. There's no need to go there. It never leads to any good. And I am starting to see some sense that as people are getting out there, they're they're moving on. They're, they're looking forward. And they're not spending a whole lot of time doing victory laps or I told you so or why aren't we all dead? You know, instead, it's much more like, let's move on. We all want, you know, what we had um, to some extent. And so let's go there. And, and so it's it's heartening to think that the data suggests we are going there.
Are we agreeing more to disagree? Uh, because it seemed we had lost that for a while. It's we either have, my team or your team. Exactly. And and it was all about our team, right? So, so what I think is we're not, yes, we're agreeing to disagree. And I think more important than that, the things that we disagree on are becoming a less important part of our life. Mm. As as we go forward, as we re-engage with work, and as, as you know, the vaccine mandate isn't there to cause friction on a daily basis, I think we're just looking at other stuff. And, and those disagreements are getting crowded out by things we agree on. And, and I think that's what we really want to do. And, you know, I, I've, I have this term common ground. Um, the example I have is a Toronto police officer I'm working with for the, to support mental health of officers. He was a firm anti-vaxxer, but we still both really care about the mental health of police officers. And so we've said, you know, we're going to continue doing our work together and we're just not going to talk about certain things because we know nothing good comes when we do. Why do we think we're more divided than what we are? Well, I mean, I, I think for many people, I'll speak for myself, it was just shocking to see, you know, some events. And, and, and we're talking about things like the border, you know, shutting down the border. And yeah. we're talking, of course, Ottawa, the truckers in Ottawa. There, those were events where Canadians seemed to be downright rude and self-focused. And I think for many of us, that was shock. Uh, we just didn't expect to see that level of yeah, you know, self-focus and, and anti-government with that anger and whatever. And so I think for a lot of us, you know, that made us feel like, holy crap, what's what's Canada coming to? And we even saw it sometimes in our families where we, you know, ran into the mm. same situation with, with people we love. And so when it's personal to us and our country is personal to us, our family is personal to us, and we see these new divisions we never saw before. And I think especially, of course, we see the south of the border and, and we get all the resonance with that. And, you know, we certainly hope we're less divided than they are down there, but we're certainly living in a climate of division. And when we saw a few instances in Canada, we started thinking, oh, here too. Um, and, and I think this, this survey makes us think, well, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, maybe, yes, but maybe it was more of a blip than a, than a real change in who we are. It seemed that for a while there, especially during the Trump era, that people were attracted to divisive political leaders. Is that mm -hmm. changing, do you think? I mean, that was always more true, uh, again, in, in America, um, less, you know, we, we tend to be much more centrist in general in Canada, centrist maybe with a slight lean left in some way. Um, and we're not as, you know, that, that's one of the things this survey shows, we're not as extremely separated in that, in that regard. And so but it seemed I, like I we were we, fighting. It seems though, Steve, sorry to interrupt that, you know, yeah. we had 90% of Canadians vaccinated, especially during the trucker camp convoy, yet we're, you know, we're, we're yelling at the other 10%, like as you said, who cares? Yeah. There's bigger fish to fry. Let's move on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the attitude we need. But that 10% was a very loud 10%. And I don't even know if it was 10%. Um, but but what it, you know, it was very loud and it was shocking. And, and we're always drawn to things that surprise and shock us. Um, but yeah, I, I think exactly what you said is not just what people should do, but what they are doing. I, I think there is this natural behavior. We don't want to live in that divisive yeah. kind of uncomfortable spot and and now we have options you know that's sort of all we had then that was the news is what's the current covid situation what are the current rules etc now we have concerts and we have you know social events with our families and we have all these other things filling our day and mm -hmm. and i think that divisive stuff if we allow it just to get pushed into the background and and we choose not to give it any life not to breathe any air into it then i think we're good good times are ahead for canada uh, i think we can get back to the canada we all love 
Good points. Uh, Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. As always, Steve, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. While uh, G7 leaders are meeting in Germany, Ukraine continues uh, to be hammered by Russia. And uh, President Zelensky addressing the G7 uh, today and obviously asking for even more help. Where are we uh, with this? 129 days in, I believe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor, both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott. So here we are, obviously, uh, way deeper into this than anybody ever thought we'd get once this whole thing started. What is Zelensky saying to the G7? Is any of this resonating? At this stage of this war, what is he asking for them? Look, we're at a critical juncture. Zelensky knows that among Western populations, there's a very high risk of war fatigue here. And he knows that there's a very high risk a risk of the Western coalition fracturing over war fatigue. That is to say, democratic politicians are going to come out over pressure, over costs of inflation that are at least partially driven uh, by the invasion. And that Western populations, as they look at the, uh, at the costs and of what's being asked of them, uh, will start to doubt whether Ukraine is worth the candle. And so this is an effort of trying to make sure um, that um, everybody stands by Ukraine. And at this point, this is not merely a matter of standing by Ukraine or supplying Ukraine with weapons. Ukraine is literally running out of fuel. They're literally running out of munitions. Uh, so this very much means about the, a dis- key critical decision, critical juncture for the West to actually keep Ukraine in this fight to be able to continue to resist uh, the Russian onslaught because time is ultimately on Putin's side. He has mass, he has scale, and we've seen in recent weeks that uh, he, if he concentrates that mass and scale, he can make inroads uh, against Ukrainian defenders. Uh, are those officials looking for an off-ramp now? We talked about that earlier, and there was no real real search for that. Is, the, is that now an option? Are people looking for, how do you end this? Well, absolutely. I mean, you've already seen uh, the rather uh, scathing failure of an Italian peace plan that came when the two coalition partners in Italy on the left and the right uh, told the caretaker Prime Minister Mario Draghi that they would not be supporting any more weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And so you can already see different countries trying to find an exit strategy um, in, in part because they're coming under uh, huge pressure. I mean, in places, most places in Europe, gas prices are up 130% or more um, over the previous years. And the real challenge for coalition partners is coming in 2023 and 24 in Europe um, when the uh, reduction in uh, gas deliveries from Ukraine will really start to hit uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the energy costs. And so... Um, uh, basically, I think there's going. Putin knows there's going to be massive pressure uh, from some countries to try to have Ukraine cut a peace deal before next winter comes, in the hopes of de- stabilizing gas deliveries from Ukraine. So the question is: Are Ukraine and Russia going to exhaust themselves first, where they both arrive at a ceasefire? Or is Putin going to try to gamble and hold out, uh, assuming that some countries will um, uh, will put enough pressure on cutting some sort of peace deal and otherwise threaten to defect from the Western coalition? You talked about war fatigue in the West. What's life like for Russia? What's it like there? 
Well, Putin has a very tight control over that state. So there is no risk really of a coup d'etat. Um, most people have no choice but to back Putin and to back his strategy. They don't have an exit strategy from the country and much of the opposition has effectively left. They've left for the West, that is to say the middle class that had gone on the, uh, on the street um, over, uh, over the invasion. So uh, in that sense, Putin is, uh, has, has, has relatively free reign uh, to continue to pursue the strategy. And in Russia, the pain that the invasion is inflicting, in many ways, Putin's narrative has taken hold that this is a price worth paying. Uh, and it seems very difficult to convince Russians otherwise. And uh, the sanction strategy that at the beginning of the war, uh, people thought would drive Putin to his knees. Look, with the rising oil and gas prices, as some economists had predicted, Putin is bringing in as much money as before. So Putin is very far from going bankrupt over this war. He can keep paying for this war for quite a while. Uh, what he can't keep up is the uh, the use of materiel, uh, in particular high-tech weaponry that he cannot replenish uh, as a result of um, technology transfer, sanctions on technology transfer, uh, and now the effort by the West to also uh, put a stranglehold on some of the supply chains for Putin's war machine. What about Russia's future, even economically, uh, post-war? Does the rest of Europe just go, buy, go back to buying gas from Russia? Um, well, it is going to be very difficult to substitute for uh, the amount of gas that um, Western Europe was procuring from Russia. The oil is a bit easier to substitute uh, because there's more of a global supply chain, um, in particular by sea. Uh, the gas is trickier because there are fewer countries that can provide the liquid, na liquefied natural gas, and there's even fewer terminals. And the countries that do provide liquefied natural gas, such as Australia, have long-term contracts with China that are largely maxed out. So they don't have capacity to simply pivot uh, and start delivering to Europe. Um, the US has some capacity that it's, it is harnessing. The one allied country that does have capacity and that could bail out Europe is Canada. Uh, and our prime minister mm. said he has zero interest in, uh, in doing so. Um, and that is drawing the ire of our European allies, but it also makes our European allies realize uh, that Canada is an unreliable ally and that they are ultimately on their own when it comes to their own energy security and energy future. But our hands are clean, Christian. Look at that. No dirt on those hands. Um, what else can we, uh, obviously that's, I'm being glib. What else can we do or the West, what else can the West do for Ukraine that they have, that they haven't already done? I mean, obviously we know you can't fly in there, uh, that sort of thing. So that line was drawn pretty early on. What else can we do? Well, certainly I think at this point it becomes a question of, uh, you know, I think much of what, uh, allies have said is sort of speak loudly and carry little stick. Um, uh, that is to say, I think we've uh, there, there's been a lot of bluster and a lot of sort of words of support. Um, but uh, the um, I think we didn't anticipate how much support Ukraine was going to need, especially uh, on the military side. And our ability to ramp up on training and equipment um, is uh, much slower than uh, I think we, we didn't plan ahead sufficiently far enough on the political side and a politician is hoping that this problem would just solve itself and go away um, and the equipment that we're delivering is 
uh, too little for the Ukrainians to be able to substitute. So by, by way of example, uh, Ukraine fires about 5,000 artillery shells each day. The Russians are firing 50,000 artillery shells each day. So even if the Russian shells are terribly inaccurate, one out of 10 is likely going to hit the target that they're going after. And so the Ukrainians can compensate with maneuver warfare to some extent. But look, if you're running out of munitions, uh, there's nothing that can compensate other than actual equipment uh, that the Ukrainians need in order to be able to stay in the fight. And that's what ultimately this conversation is about. Christian Leprac with us, professor at the Royal Military, uh, Mor- Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. We'll talk soon. Have a good afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, I don't need to tell you uh, how much it costs to uh, drive around or buy your groceries or do whatever that it is that you love to do. And obviously inflation uh, hitting record levels now, prices going up. And just the other day, uh, the premier, when he was swearing in his new cabinet, reminded us that July 1st, uh, he's taking uh, 5.7 cents, I believe, off a liter of gasoline, uh, that in the form of provincial sales taxes, uh, in order to give us a bit of a break over the course of the summer. It was interesting uh, talking to people about that. Uh, some actually said, well, it's not going to make any difference because uh, the gas companies are just going to raise that price and suck it all up anyway. Just going to price gouge. So I guess we should not give the taxpayers any of their taxes back. Instead, we'll just give it to the big companies. <laughs> I don't know. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. So all we're he- uh, hearing, Ian, is that uh, record corporate profits are being made. Uh, is there in, in price gouging? That's who's making all the money now. I know you're a stats guy, Ian. Are companies, are they hosing us here? Are they gouging us? Um, uh, I don't think so, but let me explain. And no, I don't consult anybody. I get emails from people saying, okay, who's paying you to say this? I don't work for anybody except Carleton University. They pay me. And I assure you, the president, the dean, don't dare tell me what to speak or say, or any other professor for that matter. We have freedom of speech. Um, the, the why I object to the language is that it's just loaded with dripping with morality. You know, it mm-hmm. implies gouging is, is a moral phrase. I mean, I, we, we study economics. We're studying supply and demand. Is that, you know, when you talk about gouging, it implies there's some agent some person, some CEO who's behind hmm. it all, this big sort of giant conspiracy and he's out there uh, pulling strings, you know, like a puppet master um, to to screw everybody. I mean, it, it's just, it's so childlike, you know, it's so, you know, it's very high school. And uh, I'm not suggesting that profits aren't going up. I'm not suggesting that when you have an imbalance of supply and demand, there are temporary overshoots by the market. There's no question. Um, and, and so what we're seeing right now is, is, is this very shortages are occurring. Scott, just to make my point, let me step back for a moment, you know, to get at that sort of implicit conspiracy theory in this claim, price gouging. Well, if there's price gouging, somebody somewhere is doing it. Somebody's orchestrating it. So if we want to go down that road of who is to blame for the 
price increases and thus this alleged price gouging. Well, let's let's look right at why we have shortages. And I have been studying this and looking at the data. And this is data coming out of the U.S. Department of Energy from their statistical arm called the Energy Information Agency. Anybody can look this data up as well as stats can as well as the uh, the um, the National Energy, uh, uh, not the National Energy Board, we've re- we renamed it, but I'll, it'll come to me in a moment. Um, and the, so the data is out there on, on supply and demand and for refined petroleum products. I'll get to my point very quickly. In the last uh, several years, we have closed refineries in both Canada and the States. Mm-hmm. There is a shortfall of refining capacity this is on the website of the U.S. Department of Energy. You can People can look it up. So then the very obvious question is, well, what's going on here? Why is there a shortage of refining capacity when everybody's driving cars and trucks, right? And using other refined petroleum products. So you start digging into it and you find out that investment in oil and gas industry has been declining very dramatically in Canada and the U.S. in the last several years. Next obvious question. Why is that so when it's potentially very profitable? Well, because governments, federal government of Canada and the U.S., and critical people like a Mark Carney's and, and NGO leaders have been demonizing oil and gas and saying how bad, bad, bad it is. And they're saying these assets are going to be stranded and that we should be punishing these companies for, for producing fossil fuels. And so investors are saying, <laughs> This is a scary thing to do. Why on earth am I going to invest in oil and gas assets, including refineries? Because it looks like people are going to be coming after me and punishing me for doing that. So there's an imbalance, there's a shortfall of refining capacity because people aren't investing capital to build new refineries. Why are they doing that? Because people are demonizing the oil and gas industry. So we are being hoisted on our own petards. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to argue. This shortfall is not an accident of history. And by the way, it's not because, yes, Russia uh, drove up the price of oil. No question about it. It's all about the war in Iran, or sorry, the war in uh, Ukraine. Yeah, but if you look at the right now, and there's a very nice analysis that's been done showing what are the prices if there weren't shortages in the refinery industry, but you had the present price of oil at about $110 a barrel. What ought we to be paying per liter, including the gas taxes that exist? And we should be paying somewhere in the $1.50 a liter range. The difference is the shortages caused by lack of refining capacity. And we know all the way back to the Roman times, for God's sake, when you have a shortage of anything, salt in Roman times, guess what Mm -hmm. happens? The price goes up because people want that product very badly. So what do you do when you want something badly and there's a shortage? You offer more money to get a, get a hold of it. And so people are bidding up the prices because they want the product, because there's a shortage of the product. And so supply and demand is in out of whack right now because of government intervention, because of the demonization of oil and gas. And so this is going to continue so long as we continue to demonize this. Very quickly, Scott, before we run out of time, they're debating this in very high-level sort of coded language at the G7 the last two days. What are we going to do with inflation? Well, that really means what are we going to do about energy? And they're actually having a discussion about, well, Mm. maybe we should be uh, incentivizing some additional production of oil and gas. 
and they recognize that they their policies have created the shortages and the shortages inevitably drive up the prices. And yes, the oil companies benefit, but it's not because of what the oil companies did. It's because of government policies that created the shortages in the first place. Well said. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Lots of chatter, uh, specifically lately. I've noticed this tone change in the last several weeks, month or so, maybe. Does the prime minister's office wield too much power in Ottawa, whether uh, it's historical things that have happened in his past, whether it is something as, um, as current as the Emergencies Act inquiry, which we are seeing going on now. Fascinating column by Richard French in the Globe and Mail. Uh, it's entitled The P. PMO, Prime Minister's Office, wields too much power in Ottawa. He's a senior fellow, uh, public and international affairs, faculty of social sciences, University of Ottawa, former member of the National Assembly of Quebec and cabinet minister, and is with us now. Richard, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I can't complain. Thank you. Uh, interesting point in your column. You said uh, Justin Trudeau didn't want to dominate his government. He wants the Prime Minister's Office to dominate it for him. What do you mean by that? Well, it's been quite common for the Prime Minister's office to wield uh, a lot of power in parliamentary systems, our own and the Australians and the and the Brits. Uh, um, but normally they do it at the behest of and at the direction of the Prime Minister, him or herself. But we don't have that here. The essential decisions are being made in the Prime Minister's office by unelected people, and the Prime Minister is a wonderful retail politician who takes a great photograph, takes a great selfie, gets along well with people, um, but doesn't seem to be driving the government. And we know that because uh, ministers and uh, members complain they can't get through to him because the only people they are allowed to talk to is the Prime Minister's office. The Prime Minister's office polices the caucus, takes notes uh, at uh, committee meetings on the participation of liberal members, and basically uh, manages the government. You're making it sound as if he just doesn't have a handle on his own office, on what is going on under his own roof. Is that accurate? He said so himself in the case uh, where he had a controversy, you may recall, with uh, Madam Raybould Wilson, who uh, was being pressed by the Prime Minister's office illegitimately to uh, change a judgment that had been made by the Director of Prosecutions of the Department of Justice. When he was asked about this uh, by the Ethics Commissioner, he said, and it's in black and white, I didn't know they were doing that. Uh, that was one of the examples I had written down was uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, even more recently, when a, um, uh, a Canadian official attended a party at, a, at the Russian embassy, uh, the Prime Minister's office and apparently uh, Minister Jolie's office, uh, there was conflicting information of who knew about it and, and when. Yes, I mean, uh, I could tell you more about that, but I probably shouldn't. Uh, it, it illustrated, I think, the fact that what's important is the public appearance. What's important is performing in public. And you know, that is important politically. It's very important politically. But it's done now by this government in a short-term time horizon and with no particular interest in the sustained management of the policies and programs that are being announced 
or being promoted by these public performances. Um, you know, Madame Jolie is a, a very, very nice person and, again, a very good public performer. Um, I would be skeptical of the degree to which she directs um, policy at the Global Affairs Department, and I would be skeptical as to how much the Prime Minister would allow her to direct policy or the PMO would allow her to direct policy. I happen to think that some of the previous ministers, I think one in particular whom I won't name, was moved out of that portfolio because that particular minister had a mind of his or her own. Hmm. Uh, many have said uh, a lot of form here, not a lot of substance. Are But it seemed that Canadians were fine with that. Are yes. we now? Have things changed in a post-pandemic world? You know, you're asking me to make a political judgment now as opposed to an anal- analysis of the central government operations. Uh, and uh, my political opinions um, are worth uh, no more than many others and certainly less than people who uh, engage in public opinion polling, for example, and as a, as, a, as a profession, as a business. So my sense is that the failure to gain a majority in the last election reflected in part a superficial government that made a quick, expedient decision claiming it needed a majority and the population didn't buy that. And I don't know, I, I kind of think that's that kind of skepticism remains. But I repeat, you know, that's a broad political judgment about the country that, you know, your guess is probably better than mine. Uh, do you think the prime minister will see another election or will there be a change before then? I don't know. I think it's a very important question because I think with the right leader, um, if, for example, Mr. Polyev wins, as we collectively expect him to, the conservative leadership, um, it will be uh, highly desirable for the liberals to have a fresh uh, leader one relatively untainted by the current government, um, one who has had a leadership campaign which has demarcated them from the previous administration. Um, uh, And in that case, I think the Liberal would be in a very powerful position. But if they provide Mr. Polyev with a tired government, a government that mouths slogans and talking points and is superficially engaged with the public um, the public image, and less so with the substance of policy. I think that uh, we'll have a we'd have a a very interesting election. Let's put it that way. Richard French with his senior fellow, public and international affairs, faculty of social sciences, University of Ottawa, former member of the National Assembly of Quebec, and a cabinet minister. The opinion piece in the Globe and Mail: uh, the Prime Minister of Prime Minister's office wields too much power in Ottawa. Richard, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. Now we're hearing that uh, Russia is defaulting on its debt. What does that mean moving forward? Let's bring in Eric Cam, Professor of Economics uh, and Monetary Growth, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Any day where my radio appearance starts with a little Hamilton is a good day, Scott. There you go. All right. So uh, your thoughts. What does Russian uh, debt or filing or, or, or this announcement mean? Uh, we understand that everything that the, the, the sanctions have done, they're just selling to China anyway. So how much of an impact? What does this mean? You know, in a word, this it, not a ton, which is really three words. But the problem is kind of on a micro level and a macro level. On a micro level, well, if you're one of the people that owns one of these bonds and you were owed part of the $100 million worth of interest that Russia couldn't pay, then you're probably pretty nervous. I mean, Russia owes a lot of money. In fact, about $40 billion 
uh, if you go by U.S. dollars in these foreign bonds and half of that to people outside of Russia. So it's a lot of money. So if you're one of the people that didn't receive your interest payment or the value of your bond if it came to maturity, you're scared. Um, but on a macro level, on a larger level, the reality is, is that a lot of people have built into their expectations already, and financial markets do this all the time. They've already built in the problems with Russia. So generally, uh, not in this case, but generally, you see a lot of uncertainty surrounding default. Interest rates start to rise, risk premia start to rise, lending costs start to rise, because people get nervous. What's nice about this situation, and I use that term loosely, is that a lot of this has been built into the world financial markets. And so e even people who are exposed to Russian debt have already sort of accounted for that. So this is really not going to cause any great world fallout on a huge macro level. But again, if you're one of the people owed money, you're probably very nervous, Scott. That being said, does Putin care about that? I mean, this is, in his view, I think, man-made due to the sanctions. Because of the sanctions being put on them, they can't make these payments. So in the end, it's American debt. Does he care about that? No, he doesn't care at all. In fact, he's playing a very high-stakes game of chicken. So what's going on is that the United States ended Russia's ability to pay all this debt back through American banks. All right. So the Russian finance minister comes out, pounds his chest and says, we'll pay our dollar denominated debts in rubles. Mm -hmm. And then Russia says, uh, well, we'd be willing to pay our debts, of course, but you frozen our assets, including our foreign currency. So you've kind of got Russia, believe it or not, in a bit of a position of power right now saying we can pay our debts. There's no reason for anybody to default on their bond holdings because we don't have to default on our bond payments. We have about $640 billion in world banks. But world, if you're going to freeze our assets, well, sorry, not much we can do. We can't pay our debts. So it's really up to you to release our money. And as you see, the world's not so willing to do that. And this game of chicken goes around and around. Uh, obviously, uh, Russia uh, making its money through energy and such, uh, obviously sanctions there and, and so on. But from what we understand, anything they're not selling to the West, they're going to sell to China anyway. So does that affect their bottom line? Well, of course, China, a little bit of India, a little bit of Turkey. There's many countries out there that very silently are still trading and buying commodities and natural resources with Russia. I mean, look, this whole thing was designed, Scott, very simply. The United States and its partners said, we're going to collapse the Russian economy. But if you've noticed, the Russian economy is far from collapsed. The Russian economy, all things considered, believe it or not, is doing relatively well. And that's really counterintuitive to, to the way that the leading countries of the world thought would happen. So you're right. Putin's not all that scared. He's sitting there going, as soon as you release our funds and unfreeze our money, we will pay our debts. So there's no reason for us to go into default. So again, while it looks like Russia's in trouble, Russia's in a pretty powerful position, all, all things considered. And that's kind of been the theory of this since it started. Everybody keeps waiting for Russia to collapse. And Russia has no intention of collapsing and, frankly, is too wealthy a country to ever collapse. 
And also on the opposite side, uh, inflation's getting worse, uh, the price of energy going up, the, the rest of the world is, is feeling the pinch. Uh, many are questioning whether interest in this war is waning uh, in the West. What factor does that play in all of this? Well, I, uh, you know, you're asking me to guess a little bit, and I never like to do that. But I, I can say that, remember, that Russia itself, while a big country, plays a very small role in many bond markets in the world. It's not a major player. And if you look at countries like Canada and the United States, we're not heavily indebted to Russia. We don't have a ton of what investors call exposure. So even if there was a massive collapse of their system, which by the way, there's not going to be, but let's just assume that there was a massive collapse. Uh, Some people would even argue it's systematically irrelevant. It's just not enough money owed to enough countries. And you're right. If you're at home today, and I don't want to get on my soapbox, but if you're watching the interest rate rise at the rate that it is, and you're starting to wonder about your mortgage and your ability to put food on the table with the recent data on insolvency, this war, this game of chicken between the United States, the world and Russia, I think becomes very small if you're concerned with feeding your family. Uh, all right. Obviously, we're coming out of a global pandemic, and then we've got this conflict with the invasion, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and such. If there is no conflict in Ukraine, where is the economy now? Just coming out of a pandemic, but without the complications of Russia and Ukraine. We're in a very tenuous situation right now. Whether or not you want to talk about what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, North American economies, are, as you know, are in an inflationary spiral and they are going to be for a long time. People's purchasing power is only going in one direction unless you are of the super wealthy. And so the only thing that we can say right now is that we are we are definitely, and economists very rarely say definitely, but I'll say definitely headed into a recession, the depth of which is what I won't guess at, but we are definitely heading into a recession. And really it's stagflation because prices are going up at the same time. So irrespective of what's going on with the Ukraine versus Russia, People, consumers have to be very careful right now and really start to save wherever they can because their purchasing power, the value of those hard-earned dollars, Scott, are only going in one direction and that's down. Uh, Even anecdotally, people are coming up to me and saying, hey, gas prices, gas prices, gas prices. Uh, This is a big, big deal for people. What can governments do? Uh, governments can do something. I mean, the, the point is you, you're talking about exactly the issue right now is what can government and what can the banks, the central banks of countries do? Central banks are doing, in Canada's case, all it can do. They're raising the prime rate. They're raising the lending rate. Money is just an asset. So they're making it more expensive to borrow this asset. So people will borrow less, conceivably invest less and spend less. Now, what can the government do? Our government is currently doing absolutely nothing. It could relieve some of the taxes at the gas pump, at the grocery store. It could take the green initiative and put it on the shelf for a little bit, and it could get rid of even temporarily the carbon tax. Unfortunately, the government of Canada, and again, don't want to get on the soapbox, is on a whole other plane right now, worried about a bunch of issues. Inflation, sadly, is not one of them, Scott. Eric Cam with us, professor of economics, monetary economics, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's always an honor. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. G Summit is underway in Germany. Obviously, Ukraine, a huge focus of that. 
uh, and uh, things that have changed in a post-pandemic world, uh, including the rising price of energy. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. What are, uh, you know, obviously there's different priorities depending upon which G7 this is. Uh, this one, obviously, coming out of a pandemic, hopefully, and where we are with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how much is energy a discussion and the high cost of energy and, and inflation that's uh, a result of that? How much of that is uh, is on the agenda of this G7? It's a huge topic because it's affecting everyone around the world and it is having a devastating effect on the economies of uh, countries uh, uh, around the globe. So um, the G7 are aware of the fact that part of the problem comes from what Russia is doing in Ukraine, that this has driven energy prices up, that Russia has benefited from that, that uh, in turn, Uh, economies have slowed down. There may be food insecurity because of the blockade of Ukrainian shipments. And so these matters are all interconnected. What is happening militarily, the economic impact, energy are all uh, interacting in a way that are very, very damaging. So the G7 are trying to find solutions and they're looking for what seem to be clever solutions. One of the solutions that they are attempting to introduce, and this goes back to ideas that were uh, first voiced by Janice Yellen, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, is to put a cap on Russian energy exports. So it, uh, uh, on a price cap. And not that uh, uh, they would stop all Russian uh, sales of energy, but rather to ensure that Russia is getting low prices only and that would not endanger the energy market the oil market but they would be getting much less for oil than they're getting right now we mustn't forget that despite the sanctions in the first five months of this year russia received more in terms of oil revenue which is the largest source of export revenue than they received in the previous uh, uh, five months last uh, in the five uh, uh, similar five months la- last year But this is a very complex approach, and I don't know if they would be able to get sufficient support even within the the G7, never mind then going to other countries and getting private companies on board. Another area where they're moving is uh, to stop the sale of Russian gold, which is as well a very important export item uh, from Russia. At the same time, we see horrific Russian atrocities Uh, Today, the Russians attacked with missiles a Uh, shopping mall at Kremenchuk where dozens of people perhaps uh, have been killed. What... uh... Obviously, uh, President Zelensky met, uh, had, a, had a meeting with the G7 leaders. What can he ask of them that w- we have not already given? What else can we do? We know the whole uh, no-fly zone, you know, that was, that's been chatted about for 130-some-odd days. Uh, but what else can we do to help Ukraine? President Biden has announced that the United States is going to send some potent 
anti-aircraft missiles uh, that originate in Norway that have longer range to help defend Ukrainian cities. This tells us that uh, we're proposing to do something tomorrow that we should have done yesterday. We have not sent Ukraine the kind of armaments that they've been pleading for for months. We have not provided the training that takes several weeks, which now we are using as an excuse as to why we're not delivering some of these heavy weapons because it takes weeks to train. But this war has been going on for four months. And it has been this extraordinary timidity shown by the West and in particular by the American president who talks loudly but doesn't do all that much. Um, yes, there has been an increase in the armaments that have been sent to Ukraine, but we have to judge that in terms of need. And when we look at the need that they have, those needs have not been met. They need many more heavy armaments. They need much better anti-aircraft missiles. And the West could also help open up a naval channel uh, in the Black Sea that would allow Ukraine to export grain, barley, and other cereals. Ukraine is one of the largest exporters in the world. And this is affecting not only the Ukrainian economy, it is creating a great deal of food insecurity in Africa and elsewhere. So the West can do much more, but it's a matter of its willingness to do so. And what Vladimir Putin is counting on is what Tolstoy said that the strongest warriors in a conflict are patience uh, and and a willingness uh, to 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 act, and that doesn't seem to be very much the case in the West uh, at the moment. Uh, that patience is beginning to wear thin, and uh, the uh, time that. Uh, uh, it takes uh, is is also uh, a factor. And Vladimir Putin mm. thinks that time and uh, patience are on his side. Arl Brown with us, professor international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, G7 leaders meeting uh, and met with uh, Ukraine President Zelensky today. Uh, very much. Uh, thank you very much, Arl, as always, for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always greatly appreciated. Thanks to Diana and Dave in the newsroom. Thanks to the two Wills for producing. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. My name is Janice. I just, um, my understanding of the Roe v. Wade situation is that the Supreme Court has decided that the woman's right to an abortion is not in the Constitution. And I find it interesting that all of a sudden everybody's upset about this um, decision, and yet they will go to war when the government tries to decide on their right to bear arms because it's in their Constitution. So I guess my point is that they can't have it both ways. That's all. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.